0: Hub, and Spoke, Audio Collective. We're not going to squeeze it. No, we're not going to squeeze it. We're just going to look with our eyes. This looks kind of like toothpaste, although the red cap makes it look like it's like glue or something. But it looks like a tube of something. Like I wanna squeeze it, even though like I know that it's made out of like metal and like, stuff that isn't squishable, but like I really like really want to like jump on it or something, you know, <laughs> just like touch it. Get the last little bit out. It does look like it'd be satisfying to squeeze. Like you'd get a big squeeze out of it. It's not so empty that you need to roll it up from the bottom yet. It seems like a very like rudiment—like, if somebody was trying to make a piece of art out of a toothpaste container, this is what it would look like. There's no brand name anywhere. It's like, the toothpaste like vaguely looks like toothpaste. Toothpaste caps also have lots of ridges. Like, this yeah. looks a little like a fez. I just saw something that I was not expecting to see, which is a like person laying out to suntan or something and like their hat is off to the side and they're just like casually like their knees are up a little bit and like they're leaning up they're like leaning up a little bit like on their elbows like up to talk to somebody do you see it yes Yes. yeah what is the art to this well I feel like it's the sort of making it crazy like the everyday you know (laughs) trying to look at it in a new way making it so oversized I feel like it feels old-timey, you know, like it's, it's like the off-white, like this is definitely Pepsodent and not like Colgate or Aquafresh, you know, And but like the beige color of it and stuff like makes it, so like I feel like that helps me kind of look at it like art because it's like 1950s toothpaste, like Ralphie would use this toothpaste. I don't know, if it was like, if it looked like my toothpaste at home, I think I'd be rolling my eyes more. When you uh squeeze toothpaste from a tube, do you squeeze it from the top or from the bottom? I squeeze toothpaste from the bottom and it drives me crazy when people squeeze in the middle of it. I always fix the toothpaste when someone has squeezed it from the wrong part. <laughs> and there is a right and a wrong way. I kind of squeeze randomly until we get down to the nitty gritty and then I start at the bottom. I want to get every last drop of toothpaste out of there. And I have also been known to cut it in half and swish the toothpaste, <laughs> toothbrush around in there when it's, when it's not really, I mean it's empty but it's not quite. If you cut it in half, you can get a couple more days out of it. And which way do you roll the toilet paper? That's a whole other thing. <laughs> it's a whole other episode. I know. <laughs> This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 49 Klaus Oldenburg's Giant Toothpaste Tube from 1964. My first real job out of graduate school, which you probably all know by now, was in finance. It was early 2009, and everyone with an arts degree was standing in the smoldering crater of the Great Recession. And while I wasn't able to snag a job in the vastly shrinking museum world, I was, pretty unexpectedly, able to land a job as a high-level administrator in a global asset management firm. And for everything about the world of finance that I was unaccustomed to after spending so many years in academia, honing and musing on the life of the mind, the most striking was, of all things, Netflix. You know, Netflix, which to me had been a furtive thing that I'd hidden from the ivory tower, a thing that I used to procrastinate from the important work, a thing that I wasn't supposed to admit existed. I mean, obviously it did. We all watched it, my whole cohort, sometimes together, all the time. But God help you if you mentioned its existence in a seminar paper on the Ballet Russe, is what I'm saying. In the world of finance, though, of course Netflix is a thing. And you don't have to pretend that it isn't. It's a holding. It has a ticker symbol. It attempted an ill-conceived split into Quickster, which, if you were a portfolio manager in 2011, mattered a lot. And more than anything, Netflix encapsulated, to me, this divide between my two worlds, between the life of the mind and the boots on the ground. Art historians live in a world of theory and brushstrokes and what the marble communicates across time and space. A world high above our daily mundane lives. The lives that actually affect the way that markets move, the way the actual world spins. And there's a judgmental aspect to this, of course. Art is supposed to speak to a higher version of ourselves, not the selves that, you know, lie on the couch watching Netflix. But what if there was art that did acknowledge that this is something that we do? That we spend our daily lives not floating above the world on wings of high-minded ideals, but instead swimming in a sea of commercials and consumerism and commodity. A sea of stuff. The stuff we buy and lovingly fondle and then have too much of and con Marie and get rid of. The stuff we use in our backstage lives, behind closed doors, brushing our teeth before we present the higher versions of ourselves to the world. The stuff that we see so often that we stop seeing it. What if art acknowledged the stuff? Just maybe we would look at the stuff differently. Just maybe we'd see it the way that pop artist Klaus Oldenburg does. You've definitely seen an Oldenburg in a modern art museum. You just don't forget a thing like that. Because you've wound your way through rooms of Monets and Cezannes, Pollocks and Rothkos, and all of a sudden, you turn a corner and right in the middle of the white-walled gallery, probably on a raised platform, there's a hamburger, or a tube of lipstick, or here, a half-squeezed toothpaste tube. And first you think almost unconsciously, hey, I have that at home. And then you think, well, wait, why is it here, supersized in a museum? Didn't I come to the museum to transcend that stuff? And just by asking that, you've asked a mouthful and inadvertently tapped into a circle that so much of 20th century art tried to square. Because on the one hand, you just sat amongst Rothko's, you probably did just transcend a tube of toothpaste. But on the other hand, here is that toothpaste tube nonetheless, and maybe just by dint of looking at it in such close proximity to a Rothko, in the quiet contemplative stillness of a museum gallery, it's a little changed. Maybe the longer you stand in front of it, the more disconnected the toothpaste's form becomes from its function, like when you stare too long at the word shampoo. Maybe you'll find yourself, as Oldenburg hopes you will, encountering it as though for the first time. And this idea, this reintroduction to the unremarkably familiar, which was first articulated in 1917 and in episode 17, when Marcel Duchamp placed a subversive urinal in a museum, was formative to pop art. What happens when we retrain our eye and open our minds to the world around us? What happens when, to paraphrase David Foster Wallace, our little fishy brains are blown with the newfound awareness that this whole time we've been swimming in water I'll tell you what happens. We suddenly see the billboards we've ignored, or the gruesome newspaper images that we've become desensitized to, like we saw with Andy Warhol's electric chairs in Episode 5. Or maybe we start to think about these objects in artistic terms, how something disposable can be reimagined as timeless, like Roy Lichtenstein did when he painted comic book frames in Episode 27. Or maybe we see the aesthetic beauty in the design of the streamlined, ever-changing shape of a toothpaste tube as its innards slowly get squeezed out. And this is how pop artists deploy their arsenal. The myriad ways that they open our eyes to the world around us, with, in the words of Andy Warhol, quote, images that anybody walking down Broadway could recognize in a split second Comics, picnic tables, men's trousers, celebrities, shower curtains, refrigerators, Coke bottles, all the great modern things that the abstract expressionists tried so hard not to notice. End quote. And that dig at the art world is a critical piece to all this. Because, as we just said, We're used to thinking about both making and viewing art as a transcendent experience. You know, that indescribable awareness that the extraordinary is separate from the mundane. But what pop artists wanted us to see, and all of us, artists and civilians, makers and viewers, is that the mundane itself could be extraordinary. And it's worth taking a moment and considering what these two audiences, the makers and the viewers, bring to this debate. Because there's a difference between not noticing something that's so ubiquitous that we don't see it, like ads, and not noticing something because we insist that we're above it, like when your art history professor pretends she didn't watch Tiger King. Pop artists found themselves setting up camp in the space between these two poles, deliberately drawing our attention to the real world stuff while insisting that there was a place for this stuff in the art world. And in doing this, they gave everyone permission to recognize that we do indeed share the same world and that art itself, in Oldenburg's words, quote, should be literally made of the ordinary world. Its space should be our space. Its time, our time. Its subjects, are ordinary subjects. The reality of art will replace reality." End quote. So OK, let's get into pop art by understanding its reality, that is, its history. In the 1950s and 60s, both in the United States and in the UK, where pop art technically began, the stuff began pouring in courtesy of flush post-war economies and bolstered by the Marshall Plan, where the U.S. provided the U.K. with more than $15 billion in aid to help its recovery, and which led to an overwhelming boom in commodity culture. And it led to a strange, repressed new social dynamic, because it's hard not to equate economic recovery with spiritual recovery. To the victors go the spoils. If we have the stuff, we must be doing okay as a society. And maybe all it really takes to transcend the trauma of war is a superior vacuum cleaner. And this brave, weird new world was encapsulated by the British artist Richard Hamilton, who created what is widely heralded as the first true piece of pop art, the collage Just What Is It That Makes Today's Homes So Different, So Appealing, from 1956. The title is taken from an advertising slogan, and the image is an incredibly dense visual hodgepodge, a muscle-bound man and a pinup woman, whom Hamilton calls Adam and Eve, caught in a snapshot of their apartment, surrounded by American brand-name goods, a ham on the coffee table, a tape recorder, a Ford emblem for a lampshade, and, front and center, a Tootsie Pop that the man holds like an Olympian with a barbell which is somewhat apocryphally credited with giving the movement its name. The collage is obviously fun and a little unhinged, but what makes it so significant is that Hamilton is both tapping into how we experience the world as consumers and also showing how consumerism and mass media culture has usurped the role in society that had been historically played by art. Art told us what was beautiful, or desirable, or tasteful. But now ideal beauty could be found in a television ad for face cream. The heroic narratives of history paintings are now found on the silver screen, illustrated by the marquee outside their window. Political commentary now comes from the nightly news. And most crucially, aesthetic taste is now being dictated by attainable commodities, by stuff, which is epitomized by the sad little portrait of the notoriously essentialist British art critic, John Ruskin, that hangs above the TV, dwarfed by a much larger cover of a pulp comic book. It's so clear in this present moment depicted that Ruskin, who was famous for the quote, there is no wealth but life, has been woefully relegated to the past, the okay boomer of the 50s. it's okay to laugh at this collage. It's excellent satire, and if you find yourself charmed, it's not because you're a complicit consumer, or at least not solely because you're a complicit consumer, but because it really is charming. And why shouldn't it be? I mean, it's speaking right to us. It's validating the obviously trivial stuff that we still hold dear that makes us, at least temporarily, feel good. Of course we can look at the trappings of commodity culture and realize that we've grown immune to something kind of disturbing. But sometimes we also want to let these objects just spark joy. I mean, who among us hasn't been self-medicating by shopping online throughout the pandemic? Why can't we just enjoy being reintroduced to our own stuff as though for the first time? So let's look closer at the art that lets us do this. Just what makes the same hamburger or toothpaste tube that we've seen a million times so different, so appealing? And this is where Klaus Oldenburg shines. While so much of pop art is described as cynical and slick and no less judgmental than the snooty art world that they're rebuking, Oldenburg is consistently on the lookout for whimsy, for sparks of joy. His broader critique of consumer culture is no less incisive, and yet he still wants this re-encounter with our stuff to be a positive one. He was born in Sweden in 1929, though immigrated to the US as a kid, and having grown up steeped in both the war and its aftermath, found himself a voracious consumer of images, taking great pleasure in observing how those images responded to the changing world. He grew up in Chicago, studied art history at Yale, and then settled for a time in New York City in 1956, where he befriended a number of artists toying with alternatives to abstract expressionism, which was beginning to be seen as overly navel-gazing and a little dull. Oldenburg was particularly inspired by the storefronts of Lower East Side Manhattan, the shop windows boasting everything under the sun, clothes and foods and all manner of goods, They seemed so incongruous with the self-important worlds depicted by Pollock and Rothko, so wonderfully unremarkable and down-to-earth that their banality seemed almost profound. His first major exhibit was actually a month-long installation in 1961 called The Store. In collaboration with a local gallery, he rented a store in his Lower East Side neighborhood and stocked it with his sculptures. Painted plaster reliefs and pliant canvas depictions of cigarettes, lingerie, burgers, a banana split, a candy apple with a bite missing, a cash register, dolls, dresses, hats, shoes, and on and on, all rendered blob-like and bulbous, with shiny, dripping paint. Some objects pristine and exact, and others deliberately naïve, like what your eight-year-old brought home from art class. And you can see the artist's hand in this handmade style, which was unique for pop art, which tended to mimic mass production, see under Warhol soup cans. And this presence of the artist is made all the more striking by the physical presence of Oldenburg himself, whose very participation in the installation morphed it into a kind of a performance art piece. The historically aloof artist became a friendly shopkeeper, inviting you into this utterly whimsical space giving you explicit permission to enjoy this exuberant celebration of stuff, where form is everything and function is non-existent, where cheap diner food and and five-and-dime objects are now rendered simultaneously useless, and because they're one-of-a-kind, kind of priceless, or at least far more valuable than the original things that they're based on. And you can imagine the delight of walking around this space as visually packed as Hamilton's collage, as the artist sits watchfully in the corner. So much of what you're used to overlooking is here, constructed with so much intent. And it makes you realize that maybe you've overlooked the actual aesthetic intent that went into these commodities in the first place, even as they were created to be expendable and replaceable. And for more on that, subscribe to the design podcast 99% Invisible. And this all-consuming experience of his work, a quote-unquote totality as the art historian Martin Friedman describes it, becomes a thumping pleasure for the senses that doesn't end when you walk out the door. On the contrary, it opens your eyes to the world around you, that world you never thought to notice. Quote, I am for the art of underwear and the art of ice cream cones dropped on concrete, Oldenburg said. I am for an art that is as heavy and coarse and blunt and sweet and stupid as life itself," End quote. And there are two elements in particular that I want to pull out of the store that help us better understand Oldenburg's work. First, this idea of an all-consuming experience And second, the idea of form being everything and function being non-existent. In terms of the experience, when it comes to an Oldenburg, much like with a Louise Bourgeois spider, the experience of the art varies wildly depending on the context that you see it in. It's one kind of experience, as we've discussed, to come upon a toothpaste tube in the middle of a museum and one that drinks explicitly from Marcel Duchamp's well, after all, Duchamp's subversive experiment wasn't just the urinal as art, but that the urinal crossed the hallowed threshold of a museum. Again, listen to episode 17. But the museum is just one place you can experience in Oldenburg. Another, probably more commonplace, is out on a public plaza or on a campus. And public art is really different from art inside a museum. You can interact with it without a guard breathing down your neck, often you're even encouraged to. After all, it's on your turf. There's less prescribed self-seriousness, more free association. You rarely worry that with public art, you're missing the point. But public art, and more specifically, deliberately forfeiting the seriousness of a museum, well, it has its own challenges because a big object just hanging out on its own can feel a little silly at best and ridiculously kitschy at worst. And I'm reminded of when my husband, my in-laws, and I took the long way home after chasing the 2017 eclipse by passing through Casey, Illinois, a small town on the map exclusively for being home to a whole bunch of the world's biggest stuff rocking chair, crochet hook, bird cage, wooden shoes, golf tee, pencil, I could go on. And we, of course, had a merry old time posing with them and gramming the evidence. But would I call them art objects? Mm, Not as such. But then I think about last week when I went to Willard Park in Cleveland and happened upon Free Stamp, an enormous metal sculpture shaped like a rubber stamp with the word free in the stamping area, which was designed and bequeathed to the city by Oldenburg and his wife and artistic partner, Kuzy van Bruggen. It is unequivocally public art. But what really is the difference between free stamp and the world's largest ball of twine? They're both charming and arguably unnecessary and totally divorced from their function. What makes one art and the other just kind of wonderfully ridiculous. First, there's the question of intent. The world's largest crochet hook was intended to be just that, just a regular thing made absurdly gigantic for the sole purpose of whimsy, or to set a record, or just to generally be neat. And while we can experience Oldenburg's free stamp as an enormous, whimsical plaything, at least my nieces and I sure did when we were running around it, it was actually created, I later found out, to be an offshoot of the famous Civil War era's Soldiers and Sailors Monument that's located across the street. The free actually refers to the emancipation of slavery. There's artistic intent behind its impact, even if few people know it and in the larger debate between art and craft or art and kitsch, this really matters. The second point, which I actually think is more interesting for our purposes, brings us back to this larger idea of the relationship between form and function. If free stamp were an actual functional rubber stamp, we'd be focused on, well, its function. But the very fact that it's a sculpture of a rubber stamp means that our focus is now on its form. Because if you're the world's largest ball of twine, you are still indeed a ball of twine, not a sculpture of a ball of twine. And the fact that something is deliberately an art object made from wholly different materials and not just an enormous version of a usable thing, well, it makes all the difference. It's what makes Jasper John's target from episode 22 different from an actual target, even though you could shoot an arrow at both. It changes the way we'd be inclined to interact with it. It opens our eyes to it again for the first time. And you could argue that this applies to so many of Oldenburg's objects. How his reintroducing us to the essence of their form comes at the expense of their function, and that if we really want to appreciate art, then this is a good thing. There's value to this form-forward, even form-exclusive approach. It allows us to mediate on an object's design, to seek out the extraordinary in the utterly ordinary, without being distracted by our human impulses with regards to its function. The mouthwatering aroma of an enormous man-versus-food sized hamburger or the need to wrap our minds around the sheer amount of toothpaste that it would take to fill this five and a half foot tube. But you could also argue that Oldenburg's particular gift isn't just his ability to make us see a familiar object through this profound emphasis on form. But as we've been hinting at this whole time, to actually collapse the space between the hallowed art world and the ordinary Netflix-watching us. He wants our worlds to collide, to come together, for art and life to amalgamate into one. So how does he do this? Well, take, for example, Oldenburg's use of what he calls soft sculpture. Throughout the 60s, he became known for taking familiar, prosaic, and usually pretty hard objects like toilets, typewriters, and car parts, and rendering them in canvas and paint, making them soft and malleable. And doing this, he argued, makes them vulnerable, as if they're encased in mortal flesh that could sag with age. It quite literally makes them human. Or consider the sculpture "Greater Divide, from 2002, by the artist Mona Hatoum, although impossible to at not least conceptually trace back to Oldenburg. It's basically a giant cheese grater that stands up, dividing space like a Japanese screen. And this massive version of an everyday object both elicits our human reactions of fear and repulsion. As Honey, I Shrunk the Kids taught us, even the most anodyne objects can become menacing when enlarged and yet also makes unexpectedly beautiful art. The light through the greater holes spray the walls and floor of the museum with a meteor shower of dappled shadows. Or consider, too, how life and its very commodities are time-bound, meaning that once an object's function has passed, well, maybe it can fully become form. To this end, one of Oldenburg's most well-known objects is a giant typewriter eraser which is so antiquated now that younger viewers can't help but see it as sculpture, as art, as disconnected from its original function as that floppy disk save button on Microsoft Word. And when you bring art and life together, as Oldenburg does so well, you tap into something crucial about why we're drawn to art at all. To this end, one of my favorite Oldenburgs has always been Floor Cake, his giant, handsome soft sculpture of a piece of cake from 1962. And I'm not drawn to it because of its intrinsic artistry, but because I crack up thinking about Homer Simpson seeing a piece of pie that Bart put on the floor to lay a trap, and delighting in his discovery of floor pie. And in trying to articulate what about that throwaway moment is so funny, I realized that it helps me understand what about ourselves Oldenburg is tapping into. And for the sake of argument, let's sub in Oldenburg's equally scrumptious soft sculpture of a slice of pie on the floor, also from 62, titled Pie a la Mode, but which is essentially floor pie. And here's what I discovered. Placing the pie on the floor completely changes its context, enough to even change its name. But in Homer's mind, it doesn't do anything to change its fundamental desirability. Floor pie is as delicious as any other kind of pie. And that's really funny and explains how critical context is in explaining why we like the thing in the first place. If we didn't like pie, we wouldn't be tempted by floor pie. But the very fact of its being on the floor, and in Oldenburg's case, made out of canvas, foam, and paint, makes us encounter this pie very differently. It makes us appreciate it more subjectively. It's fundamental pie that then makes us recognize our desire for it all the more. And that's the kicker. This is a piece of art that makes us keenly understand our love for a piece of pie. And that's a pretty generous thing to do. Most works of art don't take the time. They don't bother to recognize that as we walk through a transcendent art gallery, we're still human beings, engaging in the life of the mind with our boots still on the ground, squeaking away on that museum floor. Art doesn't usually appreciate that maybe we're getting a little tired, a little bit peckish, and maybe planning to stop in the cafe for a slice of pie before heading home. But with Oldenburg sculptures, we still get to be our human selves. Like them, at once extraordinary and totally mundane, heavy and coarse and blunt and sweet and stupid. And we don't have to pretend that we aren't. Pie. Special thanks to Adrian Mathewitz, Mayan Plaut, and the whole Blanche family for being my intrepid museum-goers at my new home base of the Cleveland Museum of Art. For more information, past episodes, and all the images, go to thelonelypalette.com, or follow us on Twitter, at Lonely Palette, or on Instagram, at The Lonely Palette. Or like us on Facebook. And get the show into more ears by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And hey, if The Lonely Palette is filling that hole left in your life from all those months of closed museums, then why not toss a few bucks into our plexiglass box near the exit by supporting the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Lonely Palette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of Boston-centric, idea-driven podcasts. And if Oldenburg has gotten you excited about celebrating the beauty of everyday objects, then you'll love a recent episode of Erica Heilman's Rumble Strip, where she sits down with Claire, the curator of the Museum of Everyday Life, which lives in a barn on Route 16 about 12 miles from Glover, Vermont, population 2,000. Claire is a nurse, and her most recent exhibition on The Knot has gotten waylaid by the pandemic. And just maybe there's something there to be said about the human condition in that. And if so, Erica will find it. Listen at rumblestripvermont.com or at hubspokeaudio.org or wherever you get your podcasts.